Let's open up our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. I'm going to read a set of verses, beginning in verse 16. It says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are abomination to him. Now, this is in Solomon says, you know, God hates six things. Oh, wait a second, I forgot. There's really seven. I forgot to tell you about that. Uh, this is Hebrew parallelism. They had no punctuation. It was, Solomon's trying to use literary effect to make a point. However, it doesn't really transfer to English. That's why it might be a little clunky as you read it. Uh, but the Lord hates these seven things. That's strong language. Uh, verse 17 has the first one, pride. Second one is a lying tongue. Third one is hands that shed innocent blood. Uh, the fourth is a heart that devised wicked plans. The fifth is feet that are swift in running to evil. The sixth is a false witness who speaks lies. And the seventh is a gossip, one who sows discord among the brethren or God's people. This is our sixth week in the book of Proverbs. We are not looking at chapters and verses. That's not the way the book was written or meant to be read. We are looking at big ideas about life in general and we're looking how to apply wisdom to life. Solomon said, in all you're getting, in all you're acquiring, acquire wisdom, it's the chief thing. And you're either gonna find that out the easy way, or you're gonna find it out the hard way. Solomon found it out the hard way, and if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll know why. In chapter eight, it's gonna talk about wisdom, the personification of wisdom as a woman or a lady crying out in the streets. Literally, wisdom, before Genesis chapter one, when the earth wasn't even made, it was God's delight. So wisdom is very important to God. Wisdom is the skill necessary for living life. If you want life to thrive, if you want to find your gifts and purpose in life, you need wisdom. Now, I'm gonna presume everybody got here in a car today, right? Or everybody here owns a car, or somebody you know owns a car, right? And in that car, there is a manual that tells you how the car works. Now, none of you read it. I don't read it, and I know you don't. I know where it is. It's in the glove box, right? The only time we ever look for it is when we sell the car, right? And we find it, and we brag to the person, look, I even have the manual. Like, that's really going to help them along, right? So last year, I got a used car, and it has one of these first world perks where I can leave the key in my pocket and just push the button. Really cool. Uh, the only problem is there's sometimes where I'm in a parking lot and I'm going to listen to the radio and before you would turn the key left and to the accessory and for a year I had no idea where the accessory was so I literally ran the car in the parking lot and listened to the radio, right? Kind of dumb. So I get my oil changed and the guy is leaning in, punching in all these things in my car because my car is going to tell me the next time I need an oil change. That's really cool, right? And I said, hey man, you look really like knowledgeable in this car. I can't find the accessory. And he's like, oh, that's real easy. Look, just hit the button twice, boom, accessory comes right on. I'm like, oh, geez. And then right then he says, you know it's all in your manual. It's in the glove box right over there. You know? <laughs> so why don't we look at manuals? We don't look at manuals, ready? Because we think we know what we're doing. I know how to drive a car. I know how to put the turn signal on. I can get the air conditioning on. And how many people do the same thing in life? Dusty Bible on the shelf, I don't need that, I'm my own man, I know what I'm doing, I know how to live life, I know how life works, I watch my parents, I read a couple books, I know how life works. How's it working out for most people? Yeah, not real good, right? Look at our world, not real good. And yet there's a creator of the universe who said we are fearfully and wonderfully made, we're spirit, soul, and body. 
And God has given us a manual for that. Uh, the church has erred for years on just telling us how to be built up spiritually to the neglect of soul and body, the neglect of our emotional side, the neglect of the body side. Uh, today, the world, and it's always been this way, the Greeks started, it's all about the outward body, right? It's all about LA fitness and, you know, build yourself up. And so we got people with, you know, perfect bodies and shriveled up souls. And yet the Bible says there's a wholeness to us. And we have a manual here, the Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. You ever hear that one? Uh, but within the Bible, we have the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is not as much theological as it is practical. Now, I coach ladies softball here. There is no Christian league. We're in a bar league, very competitive. We're doing really well. We just won three out of four. We're on the hunt for the playoffs. We're very excited. On my desk in my office is my Bible and my softball rule book, okay? Because in sports, and we're a sports-crazed country, you can't play sports without rules. In other words, there's guidelines on what you're supposed to do and not to do. That's what Proverbs is. God's saying, look, if you stay in your lane, if you stay in line, things will generally go well for you. Color outside the lines, you're gonna reap what you sow. Drink water from your own cistern, sexuality will go well for you. The adulterous woman will flatter you, say, let us go away for a while. You will reap from that. And so God has given us this manual on how life works, and wisdom is the skill to apply it. And I think as believers, we want to learn and grow in this. We want to look back at the end of our life and say, look, I had a lot of misses and a lot of missteps, but basically God's instruction kept me on the path that led to righteousness. Now, Proverbs 6 has been called the seven deadly sins. Now, they're deadly and they're sins. But I didn't need Proverbs to know that. Neither did you, right? I have the Ten Commandments, the words of Jesus. I have the rest of the Bible that tells me these are very bad things. So why, in Solomon's wisdom, are they in Proverbs? Why do we need to know God hates this? This is very important. Number one, these things harm others and they harm us. They do damage to our soul. And I think what God has set us up for here in Proverbs is that you and I are relational beings. So today's Father's Day. I'm a dad, right? I love being a dad. I love my children. That's one hat I wear. But the other hat I wear is I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, I'm a coach, a counselor, a colleague, a friend. And so I wear all these relational hats, and so do you. And what that means is there's a certain amount of relational intelligence necessary to live life, or we're not going to succeed. And what I mean by succeed is, one day you will be alone. You will not be in community unless you can live relationally with others. And there's a lot involved. So what I want to do is I want to go through these seven, and we won't spend a lot of time on all of them. And I want to look at them and say, how can we apply relational intelligence? How can we love the things God loves, hate the things God hates, and see our lives thrive in community? Last week, my son Mike, when he taught on wealth, uh, took kind of like a verse everybody knows from Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge God, in other words, put him into the equation, and he'll guide your steps, and he'll lead your paths. And that's what we all want, right? We want to know that we're in God's will, that he's leading and guiding us. Uh, Mike gave us two parts of that. Verse seven was, you have to depart from evil, right? You have to have stellar character. And the second thing was to honor God with your possessions, and that's basically what Mike talked about. He talked about wealth. I want to talk about character. I want to talk about who we are. 
I want to talk about this part of our life, glorifying God and putting us in relationship with others. The first thing God hates, and again, that's a strong word, is he hates pride. Now, this one's easy, right? On the surface. Get down a little bit deeper and it gets complex. Why does God hate pride? It's the sin from which every other sin flows. Whenever I hear pride, I go to Isaiah 14, right? This is an eternity past, a time we know almost nothing about, pre-Genesis 1, where there's the created beings called the angels, right? Like, like we don't know where it happened or how it began. We know that when God created the world, Job says they all sang, uh, clapped their hands when God created the earth. And we know that Lucifer was an archangel, may have been the worship leader in heaven. Uh, Ezekiel gives us the description of him. One of the most beautiful aspects of God's creation was this created being. And then it says iniquity was found in his heart, and he ushers the I will statements. I will exalt my throne above heaven. I will be like God. I'll do this. I'll do that. Me, 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 me. I, 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 I. Right? He's all that. And when I look at that, I really think that pride as a definition is a lack of contentment. There's some lack of contentment deep within us when pride rears its ugly head. I wrote down here that pride is not being content with my giftings, position, or place in God's kingdom. It's just not enough. Like God did something wrong or left something out. This is why Eve kind of went past the rule book and looked at a tree where it was wise in her own eyes and it was, and it was pleasing to the eyes and to the flesh. It would make one wise and she bought in and she and Adam made the greatest uh, failing decision of all time and sent the world into a fall. All because they thought God was holding back on them. All because there was a lack of contentment. Now here's where pride gets tricky. The Latin word is superbia. You know where this is going, right? So a food critic goes to a restaurant, he, he sniffs the wine, takes a sip, eats the food, and at the end he says, superb. You know, the idea that this is a job well done. That's why we say we take pride in our work, pride in what we do, pride in raising a family, right? That there, there is attached to pride excellence. So here's the question. If God desires excellence, and he does, then where is the fine line between me taking all that God has given me and being a good steward of it, and then crossing into pride? Very thin line. Uh, to me, the greatest example, there's actually two. One is Nebuchadnezzar, and the other is Saul. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, which meant he was the king of the world. Babylon, by any measure, was one of the great empires of antiquity. Herodotus, who was a, one of the first historians in history, said no empire passed the splendor of Babylon. They had the hanging gardens, they had winter and summer palaces, they had a double-walled city, they even had beer for crying out loud. So they were, they were pretty advanced civilization. And one day Nebuchadnezzar walks out on his palace, and you can just picture this, you know, he's out on the rooftop, he surveys his empire, and he says, is not this the great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling for my mighty power and for my honor and majesty? He doesn't think about any of the architects or engineers or builders or people that gave or taxes. He doesn't think about his cabinet. He doesn't think about anything. He just looks out and he says, man, I must be amazing because I built Babylon and it's all for me. It's all my glory. 
and all my splendor. And we look at that and we think it's extreme. We think we can never go there. But how's your empire? You know, what's it like when I drive on this campus and I look at all that God has done? What's it like when you look at your home or your business? What happens when you look at your empire? Are you like Nebuchadnezzar? Well, look what I have done. Or is there a humility that except for the grace of God, this would have never happened? Uh, Last week, Mike talked about how uh, in wealth, it's really tricky because some of us really do strive hard. We, we, we worked hard in school, we made wise choices, we, we foregoed pleasure for a season and delayed gratification, did all the right things. But even in all that, did you choose to be born in America? Did you choose to be born at this very time? Did you build the road systems, the government, the free market system, the meritocracy? Do you understand where this is all going? See, pride is a dangerous thing because it's me, 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 I, 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 to the neglect of everything God and others have done. It's very tricky. Dinesh D'Souza and Ravi Zacharias are some of the great thinkers in our culture. God has used them mightily. I've heard them both on different occasions share how they grew up in India, and except for the involvement of other people and the grace of God, they would have never left a seven square mile where they were raised. See, that's the understanding God's hand was in all this. There were people who raised me and supported me. This is what makes pride so lethal, that those who suffer the most from it are the last to know. I'll say that one more time. Those who suffer from it are the last to know. It's a blind spot. Now, we all have blind spots, right? And some people are like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know I have this blind spot. I'm working on it. No, you're not. You don't even know what it is. That's why it's a blind spot. If you know something and you're working on it, it's your weakness. But a blind spot can only be revealed by God and usually someone else. So David, right? David's all that. He, he, he commits sin with Bathsheba. He murders Bathsheba's husband. He gets away with it for a while. And who, who tells David the truth? Nathan the prophet. Now, I'm not saying we go in the cafe today and tell everybody they're blind spots. That's not what we're about, okay? There's like a clinic on how to do this. It took Nathan a year. Nathan was a trusted advisor. There's a whole packaging of this, right? Uh, But pride is a blind spot for many of us. Um, There's an old story that kind of exemplifies this. There was a man and his wife going on vacation. They had raised their kids and life was good and he was killing it. He was a CEO and... You know, they're on a driving vacation and they stop at a rest stop and the attendant's washing the windows, filling their car up. And the guy says, honey, I know what you're thinking. She's like, what? He's like, you know, you're thinking, gosh, I am so glad I married you. You're a CEO, we're going on vacation, life is good, and uh, I am so happy I married you and not this gas station attendant. Look what my life would have been like. And she said, you know, that's exactly what I was thinking. Except I was thinking how to marry this guy, he'd be the CEO and you'd be the gas station attendant. <laughs> We're always the last to know. That's what pride does. Pride has a way of getting in to the best of us. This is what I love about Paul. Paul understood grace. He understood God's favor. 
That's why in Corinthians, he writes his resume. I was the tribe of Benjamin. I was the Pharisee of the Pharisee. If you don't understand everything he's writing, what he was saying is, according to the Jews, I was all that. I was a self-made man. I was, everybody wanted to be Paul. You know what he said? I've taken that resume and I've thrown it in the trash so that I might know Christ. Now, he's not saying achievement is bad. He's not saying these things are bad. What he's saying is, how in the world can I touch anything God has done? How can I take any credit for this? Uh, one of the things I have in my office that I always keep there is this ladder. Some of you may have seen me use this illustration before. To me, this ladder is the greatest demonstration of humility that I have ever witnessed. From the time you and I were born, we were told if we climb this ladder, climb over people, climb the ladder of success, when we get to the top, that's where all the good stuff is. Problem is, all the people that have the good stuff are committing suicide and taking pills and everything. Uh, the good stuff doesn't, doesn't satisfy. I think we all know that. And the, and the gospel is, God came down the ladder. Isn't that amazing? Philippians 2, Jesus, who was equal with God, didn't consider it robbery, that he had to hold on to that position, the mystery of godliness. He came down the ladder, descended into greatness. And he came down all the way to the final rung, born in the straw of poverty, born in the poorest place in the Galilee, and took on the form of the creation. Man is trying to ascend the greatness, God descended into greatness and gave us a valuable lesson. You want to be a great man? You want to be a great dad? Descend. Uh, by the way, there are no good books on humility, which is the opposite of pride, and the few there are, no one buys. Okay, but I bought one. It's called Humilitas. And in it, John Dixon says this, humility is the noble choice to forgo your status Deploy your resources or your influence for the good of others. That's exactly what Jesus did. He, for, he forwent his status that he would inspire generations. It's amazing. Uh, go through just the Gospel of John. This is staggering. John 5. Jesus said of myself, I can do nothing. I only say what the Father says. I only preach what he tells me to preach. Uh, later in John, John 5, Jesus said, I don't accept, accept praise from men. John 6, I have come down to do the will of my Father. My teaching's not my own, John 7. I am not my own, John 7, 28. I do nothing on my own, John 8, 28. I have not come on my own, but he who sent me, I'm not seeking glory for myself, John 8, 5. And the words I say to you, they're not my own. You can do a fabulous Bible study and trace Jesus' ministry. He basically reversed the fall. Everything Adam and Eve gave away, Jesus took back by reversing it all. He was content to do the will of God to come down the ladder and demonstrated it by being friends with sinners and touching lepers and being with immoral women. He demonstrated that God loves people and they matter to him. And that's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So relational intelligence is to have the humility to understand that whatever God has given us, it's been his gift. And to treat others the same way God has gifted them. You might have more spiritually than someone else, you might have more material than someone else, but to understand God has the same value in each and every one of us. There's another tricky thing about pride. Uh, Dorothy Sayers said, pride is the sin 
which proclaims that man can produce out of his own wits and impulses and his own imagination the standards by which he lives. So now it's not only, you know, I have a lack of contentment, let me go out and go for the gusto and get mine. Now it's like, you know what? We don't even need God. We can make our own standards. We can choose what morality is. We can tell people where we came from, where we're going. We're the arbiters of our own fate. I'll ask you the question again. How's all that going? Not well, right? Not well. Just watch cable TV for any amount of time. Pride destroys community right at its core. It, destro- it, 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 it fails to recognize the contribution of others. It fails to recognize the gifting in others. It's what makes the church, when the church is functionally well, a beautiful place. Because what we begin to understand is humility was the indoor, right? So think about our sizzling summer, right? We had Jack Barsky, KGB spy, very brilliant man. We had Caleb, who was born in a, in a home with two homosexual parents. Those people couldn't be any further away on the spectrum. And yet what was the indoor for both of them? Have mercy on me, God, I'm a sinner. The thief on the cross, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Great thinker like Augustine, have mercy on me, God, I'm a sinner. It was the inroad for everybody in this room, everybody that's ever been in Christianity. The poverty of spirit to say, in and of myself, I can't climb this ladder, I'll never get to God. And realizing there was a God who came down to us. Ephesians tells us that salvation is the free gift of God. It's of grace and faith that we would never boast. And so there's a a natural humility that comes when we come to Christ. There's this spirit mentality that we came in as sinners and the loving hand of God saved us. And it's what drives us, it's what motivates us. Um, You know, the Bible talks about there are really the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, the pride of life is never really been my thing, you know? I'm not gonna tell you now, you can, there's two left so you can figure it out. You know, I think we're all prone to one. Pride in the life's never been a big thing for me. All my trophies are in the attic and I don't keep awards and it's never really bothered me. But I can honestly say when I drive on this campus, I feel like I'm living somebody else's life. I'm like, oh my gosh, God, we started this church in a little theater and children were in a beer hall and you've done all this. And there's not a day I don't drive here thinking about all the hands that have helped and all the people that have given and that we've all been in this together. See, once you understand humility and grace, it kind of just dovetails into life. God hates pride because it destroys. He loves humility because it builds. So we want to love what God loves and we want to hate what he hates. Now, the next grouping, I'm going to pick out three. And you'll be glad because we're moving along. Number two, six, and seven, the lying tongue, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who gossips. So all three have to do with words and the tongue and the mouth, right? It's the biggest theme in Proverbs. Uh, James says uh, it's it's a brilliant man who can tame his tongue. Now, I'm not going to go here because we already talked about this. Pastor John taught on this. And so I don't want to kind of move into that. But again, I want to ask the question, why in Proverbs... You know, we already know lying is a sin. Why is it in Proverbs? And why does God hate this? You know why? 
Because God at his core is about truth. God at his core is about truth. Now, we have this wonderful polling company called Gallup, right? Heard a guy who worked at Gallup, he said, you know, do you ever think at your de- sit at your desk and think, I wonder how many people think this way? He goes, the cool thing at Gallup, just go down the hall and they'll tell you how everybody in America thinks. So Gallup tells us 91% of Americans lie daily. I know what you're all thinking, oh, I don't lie daily. Well, maybe we're the 9%, I don't know. For the other 91% who lie every day, 58% lie to their best friends. Next time you get a text message, think about that from your BFF. 59% lie to their kids, 69% lie to their spouse, 73% lie to their siblings, 86% of the people lie to their parents. Doctors lie to us, scientists lie to us, politicians lie to us, right? Read my lips, no new taxes, I never had sex with this woman. I mean, it goes on and on in our culture, right? And what's so amazing is There are so many lies being told that we're used to it, right? We just live that way. Now, God's not surprised. Um, Psalm 58.3 says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They come forth speaking lies. You know, hold that little baby in your hand. You have a baby dedication. Right out of the womb, there's a fallen nature, speaking lies, part of who we are. Jesus said when um, Jesus said, you're of the fa- you're a- you are of your father the devil. He's speaking to religious leaders. He said, when, when he lies, he lies from his very being. This is who Satan is. Now contrast that where Jesus said he's the word, the way to God, the truth of God, and the life of God. In other words, Jesus embodied truth. He said, thy word is truth. You and I live in such a world of lies and misinformation we actually get used to it. We, we just know that's the way it is, right? And we think it's okay and it's not harming us. Uh, I'll give you an ex- example in the natural world. We have an FDA, Food, food and Drug Administration, which has basically given us the safest food on the planet. Uh, you and I, even when you buy organic, you think it's pristine, right? I know better because my mom owned a restaurant. I saw behind the scenes, okay? So the FDA, giving us the best food in the world. Coffee drinkers in the room, anybody? Yeah, a lot of you, right? The average coffee drinker in America will ingest 136,000 insect fragments this year. Okay, how's that sound? So next time you drop something to the ground, you're afraid to pick it up and eat it, you've already ingested 136,000 insect fragments. In one cup of flour, 450 insect fragments, and the FDA says that is a stellar standard. Now it's summer, and there's barbecues. You want to know what's in hot dogs? You want to know how many insect fragments are in hot dogs? I'm not going to tell you. We actually banned them at Sizzling Summer uh, because of this. Here's the idea. God is love, 1 John, but God is light. Love isn't overlooking things. God is light. What that means is when God's light shines upon something, we see it for what it is. And this happens to us in the real world, right? Every political season, we hear all the stories. Oh, they spent millions on this and millions. And we're appalled. And then we go back to living the same way. We go back in the dark, right? This is why Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up in chapter 6, 
He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For 40 years, Isaiah never thought that way because Uzziah was the king and life was good. Only when the light of God's holiness came to be did he understand the gap. That's what I love about prayer. When I get alone with God, I have my list just like you. And 20 minutes in, that list kind of fades. And God begins to do his work. And it's always a, you know, God is always gently getting in there, shining his light on things, and they come to the surface, and I repent, and confession's a wonderful thing. A righteous man falls seven times a day. And then God has this restoring power, and he puts you back on the path, and you go on again. Look, dads, let me say this on Father's Day. Women, you might want to put your fingers in your ears. It's hard being, I was going to say a man, I'll add on a dad, whatever, but it's hard. Should have heard the loudest amen of the year was your chance, guys. <laughs> you know, there are days where I come home and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, my staff's mad at, mad at me, my wife's mad at me, my kids are mad at me, the team my coach is mad at me. Like, in other words, I'm not, I wasn't good enough today for anybody and the only thing I tried to do was help other people. And you start to realize, you know, relational worlds are difficult. I wear all these relational hats. I'm trying to help people. But yeah, being a man is hard. Leadership is hard. That's what a man's job is, leadership. It's hard. And you can either kind of cry in your milk, or you can say, God, this is the calling, and I'll walk in it. And the beautiful thing about getting close to God is not the list, and I believe God answers prayers, but it's coming out of that prayer time realizing that God is your strength and he's your source. That he loves us, that nothing's ever gonna separate us, that we can get back on solid ground. Proverbs is telling us, I think really in this section, that God longs for us to be people of integrity and people of integrity are oriented towards truth. For those of us who are lost and now we're found, we should be oriented towards truth because truth is a beautiful thing. Uh, Oxford Dictionary says that integrity is the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. It's an immoral uprightness. Proverbs 11.3 says the integrity of the upright guides them, and the idea is it guides them on the way, good or bad, in, in season and out of season, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. You know what that means? It means exactly what James says. The person who's double-minded Duplicious will never receive anything from God. This is the person who's all fired up about God on Sunday, and as soon as decisions have to be made, they go the other way and lean on their own understanding. Then circle back a year later after tragedy has come and blame the church. I married people. Big wedding, everything's wonderful. Come back two years later, everything's awful. I said, let's go back to Jump Street. You plan this big wedding, did you ever plan on how you're gonna to relate to one another? Integrity is the integrating of all parts for the whole. It's a consistency of character. And what it means is there's no dark side, there's no finding out, there's no skeletons, there's, there, there's nothing that's different about today of who I am and about tomorrow. By the way, God is the most humble being in the universe. He's also the most consistent of character. Y'all glad the sun came up today? 
I don't think you had any part in that one. And it's going to go down, and winter's going to come, and seed time and harvest, all the things we count on. God is very consistent in his character. There's enough salt in the oceans. There's enough dust on the planet. There's enough mountains and caverns to keep the ball spinning. God's doing his work. The beautiful thing about God is he's consistent. That's why you can trust the Bible. Romans 8, who, you know, he's, he's preserving till the final day what you've committed to him. Nothing's going to separate you from Christ. There's no season you're going to go through. There's no sword or famine. There's nothing. God said, I got this one. Just like the sun comes up and goes down, you can take this one to the bank. So that's what integrity is. That's what God's calling it. It's a high standard. We miss it. The word for character or integrity in Scripture is virtue. And the word in Hebrew can be translated force. In other words, think of this. Virtue is actually a force. So think about uh, some of these hurricanes we've had, right? Sandy and those. The force that comes and just wrecks everything. The Bible's saying your character can be a force for good. I think of the men over history. Martin Luther King was a force for good. Dr. James Dobson, the whole focus on the family was a force. Billy Graham was a force. Corey Ten Boom, a force. It's not morality for morality's sake. There's, there's something behind this. And God said, this is what I love. I love when we leverage who we are for others and move them farther. And again, Jesus was the epitome here. He said, thy word is truth. Jesus trafficked in truth. He desires us to do the same. Now, the last three, I'm not gonna talk about verse 18, a heart that devised wicked plans. I don't think that applies here. And I don't think feet that are swift to running the evil apply here. But the one I want to end on is hands that shed innocent blood. You're probably thinking, well, Pastor Bob, do you think murderers are in this room? I don't think so, not at least as it says. But again, we know murder's wrong from thou shalt not kill. Why do we need Proverbs? Well, Jesus kind of brought this to greater light when he said, you have heard of old, you shall not kill. But I say if you get angry with your brother, you've sinned. Now, anger is all through the book of Proverbs. You can look it up on your own. Anger is an emotion. Uh, God gets angry. He's slow to anger. By the way, God doesn't have emotion, but it's written so we would understand it. God is slow to anger. Jesus was angry at, at the people that were selling in the, in, the, in the temple courts. So anger is a true emotion. You should be angry at 1.5 million abortions a year. You should be angry that people are lied to in the theory of evolution. You should be angry about so many things. But the Bible says we should be slow to anger, and uh, God is slow to anger. But again, there's this place where anger can cross the line and ruin relational intelligence. Uh, when my kids were small, we moved into the development of twins and they had a playground. And when my kids were small, we would go over to the playground with my chief aim to get in a pickup basketball game while they played in the dirt. And I'll never forget one day we were there and all the backyards backed up to this basketball court. And there was a guy who had a eight or 10 year old son. My son was only two at the time. And he was reaming this kid out. 
And it was one of the ugliest things I'd ever seen. I was just watching him like, this guy has no sense. And I kept watching it, and I felt like God said to me, man, sin looks really bad on other people, doesn't it? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Because I can't see myself. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can fall into this so much of the time. And it really makes you think, is this the kind of person I want to be? God, please help me not be this type of person. God, help me look at the rules of life and help me look at the structure of relational intelligence because, God, one day I don't want to reap the whirlwind. I don't want to be like my dad who, when he died, four of his six children weren't speaking to him. God, I want to reap the whirlwind, not when there's a manual here that you have given me that life can be fruitful. And you know what's so great about God? He's forgiving because from that day on, I have fallen into those times, and I, like every man, fall, and God restores. That's the beautiful thing. When people criticize Calvary, right? We should be doing this, we shouldn't do that, blah, blah, blah. I say, whoa, wait, whoa, slow down, slow down. Let's go, let's, let's go back to Jump Street. Um, husband and one wife, not giving the brawling, not given the sexuality. Let, let's go down the line of all the pastors, right? As long as we got that going, as long as character stellar, we can fix everything else. We can play the right worship songs, we can teach kids the right curriculum, but, but if character goes astray, we're done. And this is where God begins. God says, I hate these things, I really do. Because if you reverse them all, you'll have a community that everybody wants to be a part of community of grace and a community of understanding where we speak the right things, believe the right things, and Jesus is our example, and we have a great heavenly father